I'm turning today to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12 and verse 31. 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 31. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. And our subject is the supremacy of love. Well, it must have been observed over and over again by preachers down the centuries that if ever a chapter heading was in a wrong place, it's right here. The chapter headings, of course, in our Bibles are wonderful, but they're not a work of the original text. But the chapter heading really belongs in front of verse 31, even though it means a chapter will begin with the word but. But covered earnestly the best gifts, or perhaps right there before the end, yet show I unto you a more excellent way. That obviously belongs with chapter 13. The more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. So love is going to be seen as the pinnacle of all the gifts. We divide the gifts into two. There were the revelatory and sign gifts, which passed with the age of the apostles. And then there were all the other gifts, the teaching gifts and various gifts given to the people of God in the New Testament church. But we divide them into those two sections. But of all of them, whether revelatory gifts or sign gifts or ongoing gifts for the people of God, the pinnacle of the gifts is love. It's the highest grace. It is indeed the essential basis for the exercise of all other gifts. It's the cement of fellowship in the Church of Jesus Christ. And that, after all, is the main subject here. If we look at chapter 12 and verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And that actually is the context and the ruling idea and theme of this whole passage. And this whole section about love is going to primarily be applied to our unity and closeness and mutual affection and sharing within the Church of Christ. That's what it serves. And also it speaks of other human relationships. Of course, importantly, that of marriage and married love. But the Apostle Paul will first of all establish that love must drive everything. It must be the driving motive for everything else. And that's our first heading, and the early verses address that. Look at verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, 
and have not charity, love, the particular kind of love which is in mind, translated charity by our King James translators, but the word has rather changed its meaning, refers particularly to giving love, outflowing love, reflecting the divine love, benevolent love in every sense of those words. Without love, though I may have this, what to the Corinthians was, a, was the supreme gift. They loved the tongues because within their culture, they were great lovers of oratory. And in fact, it swept them away. They would prefer skilled oratory to sound truth sometimes. They would be carried away by the most fluent speakers, the most eloquent. They loved it. They rated it highly. And if it came in the form of what might be called a spiritual gift, well, that for them was surely highest. So it's not surprising that in addressing the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul begins with this. What to them was the shining gift? Though I speak with the tongues of men, the languages of men, numerous languages, and of angels, which is impossible. But the apostle argues from that extreme position, if it were possible, even if I had such a magnificent gift that I understood angelic language and had not this giving love, outflowing love, unselfish love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Some translations try to find ways of improving on this, and in doing so, some of them lose the sense, because the idea of sounding brass is just an over-loud gong. It's so loud, someone has made a gong that'll wake the dead almost. But in doing so, they've lost all tone and pleasantness. And it's a horrible thing. It's a terrible and a harsh noise. That's the idea behind Paul's words. How irritating it would be if somebody spoke like an overloud gong. You'd say there's nothing musical in this, there's nothing pleasant about this. This person, every time he opens his mouth, or she, it could be a she, it's offensive, it's a noise, it's horrible, it grates. That's the idea. Paul is going in his language from the highest to the lowest. Without love, even the impossible acquisition of an angelic language would sound like a Harsh, overloud gong, which has lost its musicality. Horrible. To God, that is. That's how it will sound. Oh, but he's a fine preacher. Oh, but he moves. The charismatics often have a taste for preachers who speak like a machine gun at great rates and all the rest of it. With great uh, uh, energy and Velocity of delivery. But 
No love, doesn't matter how you speak. It's just a harsh gong. Or a tinkling cymbal. And the translators try different uh, ways of doing that too. But the idea, the best idea, is a kind of crashing cymbal. An unpleasant one, like the gong. A deeply unpleasant, unmusical one. And to God... That is what we're like if we're not motivated by love. The preacher of the gospel, the teacher in the Sunday school, the personal witness, what's in the heart as the words are delivered? Is there a longing for souls? Is there sympathy for them, for the lost? Deep, deep sympathy, concern to persuade them, a longing that by the power of the Spirit their hearts will melt and they'll come to Christ. What's in the heart? You hear some preachers sometimes why they are so aggressive. You cannot imagine that they have tender feelings toward the people to whom they preach. They try to frighten the life out of them and alarm them into the kingdom. Well, there may be a place for just a note like that sometimes, but not a whole song. Friends, what's in the heart of the spokesman? What longing? What prayer? What feeling? That's what counts. Without that, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not this outflowing love, just a noisy gong, or a crashing symbol. It's worthless to God. I presumably won't much be used by God because of the unpleasantness to him of what I'm doing. There's no heart in it, no feeling in it, no longing, no prayer. Then I may be susceptible to all kinds of sin because there's no feeling And I may do and say deeply misleading things and be used for the harm of the church. So that's their highest gift. But look at verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy, love must drive all and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. Now Paul puts it differently and have not outgoing love, I am nothing. Literally, I am not one thing. I am nothing before God. The gift of prophecy that's passed. But in Paul's day, even though a person may have been used to deliver truth in that period during which the scriptures were not complete, and understand all mysteries. In fact, be inspired to understand and to teach the deepest doctrines revealed to men and women. And all knowledge. Paul, of course, is arguing to the extreme. Though I knew everything conceivable to know on earth, and though I had all faith, This is the sudden impulse of faith by which an apostle could perform a great miracle 
an extraordinary thing to authenticate him and to authenticate his testimony about the resurrection of Christ. Though I had such faith so that I could remove mountains, it would, I would be not one thing worth nothing without a heart of love. How vital this is, dear friends, all about our gifts, all about our accomplishments, or assumed accomplishments, worthless without this motive of love. We need love for souls. We need love for the word, for the truth of God, for the gospel, for the doctrines. We need love for Christ. And without those, that triple love, we're worthless, whatever it may appear on the outside. So we need an eye which is fixed on his love. He loved me and gave himself for me. He came down from glory, leaving behind the enjoyment of his power and glory and came into this world to suffer terrible humiliation and rejection and insult and violence and ultimately the death of the cross for me. The love of Christ beyond measure, beyond contemplation. I cannot understand it. Not only was the love infinite and eternal, but it was for such a worthless object. The love of Christ, I think of his love. And I think of my debt to him. And I'm going to love those lost souls. What a tragedy is theirs, lying ahead for them. What they lose. I was saved when I deserved nothing at all. Have I no heart for them, feeling for them, and the little ones? They're going to grow up in this world. All too soon, they'll be at school. They'll have pumped into them all sorts of things which will make you shudder. And maybe they'll be subject wherever they are to all this current transgender and everything else. Satan will be working overtime to pluck them and to cast their souls into hell. Feel for them. We've got such a short opportunity to round up the children and the Lord has given us hundreds of them. Some of them from very difficult backgrounds, some of them from affluent backgrounds, to reach them for him and to save them for life and eternity. Care for them. Sympathize with them. Love them with sympathy. If they're badly behaved, yes. Love them with sympathy and concern. Without love, all we do is worthless. It must be the driving motive. Fix your eye on your own worthlessness. When in trouble, if there's a tiff at home between husband and wife, something has aggravated you, something has made you angry, something your children do has made you unnecessarily and overly irritable 
and reactive. Think of your own unworthiness. Think of how much you've been forgiven. Think of how much you throw into the pot, the cauldron of unrest, sometimes. Think and humble yourself before the Lord and seek the strength to deal with everything with dignity and affection. Dear friends, how much we need to reflect even on ourselves. But this is the way to build up affection and love and concern. And verse 3, the apostle switches now to personal sacrifice. He's moved in these verses from personal giftedness, accomplishments, now sacrifices. Verse 3, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned as a martyr, and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. This is all about generosity and self-denial and sacrifice. But what's the motive? What's the motive for self-denial? What's the motive for sacrifice in Christian service? Is it my reputation? Perish the thought. Is it just inborn stubbornness? Some people would go to the flames of a martyr because they're too stubborn to relent or recant. That's not a worthy motive for suffering. Personal stubbornness, love for the message, love for Christ, these are the only acceptable motives. Love for sinners who ought to hear the true gospel. No profit, no gain, no compensation from God, no advance in spiritual things unless there's love. And then you come to the meat of the passage in verse 4 and you're now talking about the action of love, how it acts and reacts. Charity suffereth long. It patiently bears in the church. You may have been offended by somebody. Yes, but in the context of life, in the context of our calling and our Christian service, in the context of all that we're called to be and do together, it's nothing. It's small. It's had a small scratch, perhaps, on our pride or our dignity. Some small offence and love for one another and love for the cause will brush it off and overcome it and forget it. Love suffereth long, it bears up, it tolerates, it mortifies the angry reaction or the hurt or the proud reaction. Always. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Love acts. It's tremendously kind. 
It's useful, the Greek word translated kind means. Love is useful. It's not just an emotion. It acts and it's always looking for some kind, supportive, encouraging, peacemaking, repairing thing to be done. If you've got love, that's what it does. If your husband does something which is uh, uh, making the house untidy or not pulling his weight in some respect, well, maybe you need to tackle it with him. But before you do, thank God for him. If she does something which is mildly offensive, yes, perhaps you should raise it. But before you do, thank God for him, for her. Praise and thank God. Look upon all that the other person means to you and all the other person's virtues and contribution and work and labours and love and mellow off first and then take it up properly. That's what it means. It's kind. It's always looking for a good outcome. Love envies not and vaunteth not itself. We could deal with these at length. It isn't self-seeking, self-projecting, self-protecting, self-assertive. My opinion is the one you must hold. I won't consider your contribution to the subject terrible. Love envieth not. It's not struggling to be number one in the church, in the marriage, in the department of service. Love vaunteth not itself. It isn't saying, look at me, my way, what I like, my tastes. It prefers the other before self. It's not puffed up, proud, pompous, unapproachable. It knows how to apologize. It knows how to climb down. Love is all these things. These things are so searching. They are, well, 1 Corinthians 13 constitutes a bath, a behavior bath, if ever there was such a thing. Verse 5, doth not behave itself unseemly, irregularly, and, uh, well, never belittles, never intimidates or belittles. It isn't scornful or abusive or betraying in any sense. If he does something foolish or she does something foolish, you don't wait until you've got guests or the children around and then make fun of it before the crowd to belittle, to humiliate. That's what it means to behave in a way that is unseemly. Love can't do that. It can't do that. Does not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own way, you may say. Is not easily provoked. Doesn't fly into tempers, is the literal Greek. 
doesn't suffer paroxysms, is the word in the Greek, in Greek form, at the slightest thing. Paroxysms are manifestations of pride, apart from anything else. It doesn't do that. It knows how to mortify the rising temperature within and to put it down and to choke back the words. Thinketh no evil. Oh, friends, I haven't given time to really consider some of these things, but it doesn't uh, suspect constantly the motives of anyone else in the church, in the family. Verse 6, rejoiceth not in iniquity. It never plans wrong or evil. It doesn't gossip. It doesn't take pleasure in the falls of other people and speak against them. Some people do that. Have you heard what's happened to so-and-so? The outrageous thing that so-and-so did. It's a way of boosting ourselves, really, to take pleasure. And it's an ugly and a horrible thing in the fall or misbehavior or misfortune of somebody else. Because we like discussing that. What a state to be in. That's a sure sign of no affection, no respect, no love. You want to put a veil over it if there's love. Verse 7, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth or anticipates all things. What does this mean? Beareth all things. It's very similar to the beginning. It's about long-suffering. Husband and wife, let's say together, he's made redundant. He loses his job. What does she do? Does she say, it must have been your own fault? Why did they select you? For the redundancy. How are we going to manage now? What are we going to do? Not with this love. She puts an arm around him. And she stands in solidarity with him. We'll pray this through and face this together. If she has a misfortune. Or either of them have a health problem. No, we stand and we bear the burden together. If there's a problem in the church. Somebody loses work or whatever, we stand together. Beareth all things. Troubles are not the means of the basis of a fight or quarrel or criticism. They're a time for solidarity. Believeth all things, particularly the promises of God. Hopeth and anticipates God will show us the purpose of this trial. God will bring us through and will prove him. We anticipate the blessing of God at the end of every test. Endureth all things. I want to come to verse 8, dear friends. The supremacy of love. It's our overall title. Love never faileth. All the other gifts, or most of them, will come to an end. 
they'll be surpassed. Whether there'll be prophecies. Well, prophecies were beginning to end even as the apostle wrote. As the scripture was completed, so the prophecies were drawing to a close. The gift of apostleship would be withdrawn. But certainly the fruit of those gifts, the teaching that came through them, just like the teaching of the word of God, when it was complete, all that would pass away. When? Well, I believe the Apostle Paul in the later verses of this chapter is talking about the coming of Christ and the end of the world. Some people will argue that he's talking about the giving of the complete scripture, the completion of the canon of scripture in the first century AD. But uh, I think with the old tradition that it's much more likely he's using such exalted language that he's talking about the coming of Christ. And at the coming of Christ, all our present knowledge will be vastly overtaken and surpassed by the brilliant light of truth as we, as it were, know all things. Probably we will never know all things. It will take all eternity to learn them. But by comparison with the present, we shall in a sense know all things. And even the marvellous truth of the word of God, sufficient for us now, will be overtaken by the light of eternity. And certainly anything that came by human gifts and the exercise of human gifts, the liberty and the freedom we shall have in eternity, we shall all have all the gifts in abundance. That's coming. That's in the future. And love will be the chief among them. Verse 8 again, love never fails. It goes on into eternity. It may fail with us. There may be times love fails, terrible, awful. We're responsible for that. But once we cross the threshold of eternity, there it will be, full and eternal. Prophecies will have passed away. Tongues will have passed away. It doesn't necessarily mean they last all the way until Christ comes. Paul is speaking within his present context then. Knowledge will pass away, vanish away, and be eclipsed. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, that when that which is perfect Christ and eternity is come, then that which is in part shall be done away, overwhelmed magnificently. I go to the last verse of the chapter. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. Faith. Will faith survive into eternity? Well, in a sense... It will, because not everything will be ours instantly in eternity. 
the contemplation of our dear Saviour and of God the Father and of the Spirit, the contemplation of divine truth will be everlasting. There must be, in a sense, a constant unfolding of wonder and glory and light and knowledge. So there'll be faith in the sense of expectation and anticipation will glow within the believer eternally. But the greatest of these is unquestionably, says the Apostle, love. A member of this church who went to glory some while ago, uh, who many will remember, Brother Reg Lovick, he was very expert at calligraphy and uh, beautiful penmanship. And for a number of us, he said, I will write you an illuminated text if you choose it. So I chose one. And I could imagine it right hanging before me at my work desk. And Brother Edge said to me, you can't have that. I said, but that's the one I want. He said, no, 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 you can't have that. Well, he thought about it. He said, yes, I'll do it. And he did it. And I look at it daily. And I'm reminded of it by this text. It's the words of Henry Francis Light at the end of a great hymn. Soon shall close my earthly mission. Swift shall pass my pilgrim days. Faith, hope, soon change to glad fruition. Faith to sight and prayer to praise. And that will happen. And I'm reminded of that daily. There isn't long. There isn't long to develop true giving love. To fix your mind and heart on the people to whom you teach, the children to whom you speak, the family you rear, the husband that God gave you, the wife God gave you. There isn't long to deepen and perfect your love because love is the great ruling, empowering motive and it will last for all eternity.